Volume Three, Chapter Five of *The Smuggler* by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. There are periods in the life of some men when, either by a concatenation of unfortunate events, or by the accumulated consequences of their own errors, the prospect on every side becomes so clouded that there is no resource for them but to shut their eyes to the menacing aspect of all things and to take refuge in the moral blindness of thoughtless inaction against the pressure of present difficulties i dare not think is the excuse of many a man for continuing in the same course of levity which first brought him misfortunes upon him but such is not always the case with those who fly to wretched merriment in the hour of distress and such was not the case with sir robert croyland he had thought for long years till his very heart sickened at the name of reflection. He had looked round for help and had found none. He had tried to discover some prospect of relief and all was darkness. The storm he had long foreseen was now bursting upon his head. It was no longer to be delayed. It was not to be warded off. His daughter's misery, or his own destruction, was the only choice before him, and he was resolved to think no more to let events take their course, and to meet them as best he might. But to resolve is one thing, to execute another, and Edith's father was not a man who could keep such a determination long. He might indeed, for a time, cease to think of all the painful particulars of his situation, but there will ever come moments when thought is forced even upon the thoughtless, and events will arise to press reflection upon any heart. His efforts were, at first, very successful. After he had dispatched the letter to Mr. Radford, he had said, "'I must really pay my visitor some attention. It will serve to occupy my mind, too. Anything to escape from the torturing consideration of questions, which must ever be solved in wretchedness.' And when he returned to Sir Edward Digby, his conversation was particularly gay and cheerful. It first turned to the unpleasant fact of the abstraction of all his horses— but he now spoke of it in a lighter and less careful manner than before. Doubtless, he said, they have been taken without leave, as usual, by the smugglers, to use for their own purposes. It is quite a common practice in this county, and yet we all go on leaving our stable doors open, as if to invite all who pass to enter, and choose what they like. Then, I suppose, they have been captured with other spoil, in the strife of yesterday morning, and have become the prize of the conquerors, so that I shall never see them again. "'Oh, no,' answered the young officer. "'They will be restored, I am quite sure, upon your identifying them, "'and proving that they were taken without your consent by the smugglers. "'I shall go over to Woodchurch by and by, and if you please, I will claim them for you.' "'It is scarcely worth while,' replied the baronet. "'I doubt that I shall ever get them back. "'These are little losses which every man in this neighbourhood must suffer, "'as a penalty for remaining in a half-savage part of the country.' "'What are you disposed to do this morning, Sir Edward? "'Do you again walk the stubbles?' "'I fear it would be of little use,' answered Digby. "'There has been so much galloping lately "'that I do not think a partridge has been left undisturbed in its furrow, "'and the sun is too high for much sport.' "'Well, then, let us walk in the garden for a little,' said Sir Robert. "'It is curious in some respects, "'having been laid out long before this house was built, "'antiquated as it is.' Sir Edward Digby assented, but looked round for Zara, as he certainly thought her society would be a great addition to her father's. She had not yet returned to the room, however, and Sir Robert, as if he divined his young companion's feelings, 
requested his sister to tell her niece when she came that he and their guest were walking in the garden. "'It is one of her favourite spots, Sir Edward,' he continued as they went out, "'and many a meditative hour she spends there, for gay as she is, she has her fits of thought, too.' The young baronet internally said, "'Well, she may in this house,' but making a more civil answer to his entertainer, he followed him to the garden, and so well and even cheerfully did Sir Robert Croyland keep up the conversation, so learnedly did he descant upon the levelling and preservation of turf in bowling greens, and upon the clipping of old yew-trees, both before and after Zara joined them, that Digby began to doubt, notwithstanding all he had heard, whether he could really have such a load upon his heart as he himself had stated to Edith, and to fancy that, after all, it might be a stratagem to drive her to compliance with his wishes. A little incident of no great moment in the eyes of any one but a very careful observer of his fellow men, and Digby was far more so than he seemed, soon settled the doubt. As they were passing under an old wall of red brick, channelled by thyme and the shoots of pears and peaches, which separated the garden from the different courts, a door suddenly opened behind them just after they had passed it. And while Sir Edward's eyes were turned to the face of the master of the house, Sir Robert's ear instantly caught the sound, and his cheek became as pale as ashes. "'There is some dark terror there,' thought the young officer, but turning to Zara, he finished the sentence he had been uttering, while her father's coachman, who was the person that had opened the door, came forward to say that one of the horses had returned.' "'Returned!' exclaimed Sir Robert Croyland. "'Has been brought back, I suppose you mean?' "'Aye, Sir Robert,' replied the man. "'A fellow from the lone house by Iden Green brought him, "'and in a sad state the poor beast is. "'He's got a cut, like with a knife, all down his shoulder.' "'Your dragoon swords are sharp, Sir Edward,' said the old baronet gaily to his guest. "'However, I will go and see him myself, and rejoin you here in a minute.' "'I am so glad to have a moment alone,' cried Zara, as soon as her father was gone, "'that you must forgive me if I use it directly. "'I am going to ask you a favour, Sir Edward. "'You must take me a ride and lend me a horse. "'I have just had a message from poor Harry Leighton. "'He wishes to see me, but I am afraid to go alone with so many soldiers about.' "'Are they such terrible animals?' asked her companion with a smile, "'adding, however, I shall be delighted, if your father will consent.' "'for I have already told him that I am going to Woodchurch this afternoon.' "'Oh, you must ask me yourself, Sir Edward,' replied Zara, quite in a civil tone, "'and then when you see that I am willing, you must be very pressing with my father, "'quite as if you were a lover, and he will not refuse you. "'I'll bear you harmless, as I have heard Mr. Radford say,' he added, "'with a playful smile that was quickly saddened. "'You shall command for the time.' "'answered Digby as gaily. "'Perhaps after that I may take my turn, sweet lady, "'but I have a good deal to say to you, too, "'which I could not fully explain last night.' "'As we go, as we go,' replied Zara. "'My father will be back directly, "'otherwise I would tell you a long story about my aunt, "'who has evidently got some great secret "'which she is all impatience to divulge. "'If I had stayed an hour with her, "'I might have arrived at it, "'but I was afraid of losing my opportunity here.' "'Oh, that invaluable thing, opportunity! "'Once lost, what years of misery does it not sometimes leave behind? "'Would to heaven that Edith and Leighton had run away with each other when they were about it. "'We should all have been happier now.' "'And I should never have known you,' replied Bigby. "'Zara smiled and shook her head, as if saying, 
that is hardly fair. But Sir Robert Croyland was seen coming up the walk, and she only replied, Now do your devoir, gallant knight, and let me see if you do it zealously. I have been trying in your absence, my dear sir, said Digby, rather maliciously as the baronet joined them, to persuade your fair daughter to run away with me, but she is very dutiful and will not take such a rash step, though the distance is only to Woodchurch, without your consent. I pray you give it, for I long to mount her on my quietest horse, and see her try her skill in horsemanship again. Sir Robert Croyland looked grave, and ere the words were half spoken, Sir Edward Digby felt that he had committed an error in his game, for he was well aware that when we have a favour to ask, we should not call up, by speech or look, in the mind of the person who is to grant it, any association having a contrary tendency. "'I am afraid that I have no servant whom I could send with you, Sir Edward,' replied her father. "'One I have just dispatched to some distance, and you know I am left without horses, for this poor beast,' just come back, is unfit. Neither do I think it would be altogether consistent with decorum for Zara to go with you quite alone. Sir Edward Digby mentally sent the word decorum back to the place from whence it came, but he was resolved to press his point, and when Zara replied, Oh, do let me go, papa, he added, My servant can accompany us to satisfy propriety, Sir Robert, and you know I have quartered three horses upon you. Then, as I find the fair lady is somewhat afraid of a multitude of soldiers, I promise most faithfully not even to dismount in Woodchurch, but to say what I have to say to the officer in command there, and then canter back over the country. "'Who is the officer in command?' asked Sir Robert Croyland. Zara drew her breath quick, but Sir Edward Digby avoided the dangerous point. "'Irby has one troop there,' he replied, "'and there are parts of two others. "'When I have made interest enough here,' he continued, with a half-bow to Zara. I shall beg to introduce Irby to you, Sir Robert. You will like him much, I think. I have known him long. Pray invite him to dinner while he stays, said Sir Robert Croyland. It will give me much pleasure to see him. Not yet, not yet, answered Digby, laughing. I always secure my own approaches first. Sir Robert Croyland smiled graciously, and turning to Zara, said, Well, my dear, I see no objection, if you wish it. You had better go and get ready. Zara's cheek was glowing, and she took her father at the first word, but when she was gone, Sir Robert thought fit to lecture his guest a little upon the bad habit of spoiling young ladies, which he seemed to have acquired. He did it jocularly, but with his usual pompous and grave air, and no one would have recognised in the Sir Robert Croyland walking in the garden the father whom we have lately seen humbled before his own child. There is no part of a man's character which he keeps up so well to the world as that part which is not his own. The assertion may seem to be a contradiction in terms, but there is no other way of expressing the sense clearly, and whether those terms be correct or not will depend upon whether character is properly innate or accumulated. Sir Edward Digby answered gaily, for it was his object to keep his host in good humour at least for the time. He denied the possibility of spoiling a lady, while he acknowledged his propensity to attempt impossibilities in that direction, and at the same time, with a good grace, and a frankness real yet assumed, for his words were true, though they might not have been spoken just then, under any other circumstance, he admitted that, of all people whom he should like to spoil, the fair being who had just left them was the foremost. The words were too decided to be mistaken. Sir Edward Digby was evidently a gentleman, and known to be a man of honour. 
No man of honour trifles with a woman's affections, and Sir Robert Croyland, wise in this instance, if not in others, did as all wise fathers would do, held his tongue for a time, that the matter might cool and harden, and then change the subject. Digby, however, had grown thoughtful. Did he repent what he had said? No, certainly not. He wished indeed that he had not been driven to say it so soon, for there were doubts in his own mind whether Zara herself was altogether one. She was frank, she was kind, she trusted him, she acted with him, but there was, at times, a shade of reserve about her, coming suddenly, which seemed to him as a warning. She had from the first taken such pains to ensure that her confidence, the confidence of circumstances, should not be misunderstood. She had responded so little to the first approaches of love, while she had yielded so readily to those of friendship, that there was a doubt in his mind which made him uneasy, and every now and then her uncle's account of her character rung in his ear, and made him think, I have found this artillery more dangerous than I expected. What a pity it is that uncles will not hold their tongues. At length he bethought him that it would be as well to order the horses, which was accordingly done, and some time before they were ready the fair girl herself appeared, and continued walking up and down the garden with her father and their guest, looking very lovely both from excitement, which gave a varying colour to her cheek, and from intense feelings which, denied the lips, looked out with deeper soul from the eyes. "'I think, Zara,' said Sir Robert Croyland, when it was announced that the horses and the servant were ready, "'that you took Sir Edward to the north when you went over to your uncle's. "'You had better, therefore, in returning, for I know in your wild spirits, when once on horseback, "'you will not be contented with the straight road. "'You had better, I say, come by the south-west.' "'Oh, papa, I could never learn the points of the compass in my life,' answered Zara, laughing. "'I suppose that is the reason why, as my aunt says, I steer so ill.' "'I mean by the lower road,' replied the father, as he laid such emphasis on the words, that Zara received them as a command. They mounted and set out, much to the surprise of Mrs. Barbara Croyland, who saw them from the window, and thence derived her first information of their intended expedition. For Zara was afraid of her aunt's kindnesses, and never encountered them when she could help it. When they were a hundred yards from the house, the conversation began, and I will not enter into all the details, for at first they related to facts with which the reader is already well acquainted. Sir Edward Digby told her at large all that had passed between himself and Leighton on the preceding day, and Zara, in return, informed him of the message she had received from his friend, and how it had been conveyed. Their minds then turned to other things, or rather to other branches of the same subjects, and what was to be done was the next question, for hours were flying, the moment that was to decide the fate of the two beings in whom each felt a deep though separate interest was approaching fast, and no progress had apparently been made. Zara's feelings seemed as much divided as Edith's had been. She shrank from the thought that her sister, whom she loved with a species of adoration, should sacrifice herself on any account to such a fate as that which must attend the wife of Richard Radford. She shrank also, as young, generous women's hearts must ever shrink, from the thought of any one wedding the abhorred, and separating for ever from the beloved. But then, when she came to turn her eyes towards her father, she trembled for him as much as for Edith, and with her two hands resting on the pommel of the saddle, she gazed down in anxious and bitter thought. "'I know not your father as well as you do, my dear Miss Croyland,' said her companion at length, as he marked these emotions.' 
and therefore I cannot tell what might be his conduct under particular circumstances. Zara suddenly raised her eyes and fixed them on his face, but Digby continued, I do not speak of the past, but of the future. I take it for granted, not alone as a courtesy, but from all I have seen, that Sir Robert Croyland cannot have committed any act that could justly render him liable to danger from the law. Thank you, thank you, said Zara, dropping her eyes again. You judge rightly, I am sure. But at the same time, he proceeded, it is clear that some unfortunate concurrence of circumstances has placed him either really or in imagination in Mr. Radford's power. Now would he but act a bold and decided part, dare the worst, discountenance a bad man and a villain, even if necessary, in his magisterial capacity, treat him as he deserves, he would take away the sting from his malice. Any accusation this man might bring would have an enmity too strongly written upon it to carry much weight, and all the evidence in favour of your father would have double force. He cannot, he will not, answered Zara sadly, unless he be actually driven. I know no more than you, Sir Edward, how all this happened, but I know my father, and I know that he shrinks from disgrace more than death. An accusation, a public trial, will kill him by the worst and most terrible kind of torture. Mr. Radford, too, has wound the toils round him completely, that I can see. He could say that Sir Robert Croyland has acted contrary to all his own principles at his request, and he could point to the cause. He could say that Sir Robert Croyland suddenly became, and has been for years, the most intimate friend and companion of a man he scorned and avoided, and he could assert that it was because the proud man was in the cunning man's power. If, for vengeance, he chooses to avow his own disgrace, and what is there not Mr. Radford would avow to serve his ends? Believe me, he has my father in a net, from which it will be difficult to disentangle him. They both fell into thought again, but Zara did not sink in Digby's estimation from the clear and firm view which she took of her father's position. Well, he said at length, let us wait and hear what poor Leighton has to tell you. Perhaps he may have gained some further insight, or may have formed some plan. And now, Zara, let us for a moment speak of ourselves. You see, today I have been forced to make love to you. Too much, said Zara gravely. I am sure you intended it for the best, but I am sorry it could not be avoided. And yet it is very pleasant, answered Digby, half jestingly, half seriously. Zara seemed agitated. Do not, do not, she replied. My mind is too full of sad things to think of what might be pleasant or not at another time. And she turned to look towards him, in which kindness, entreaty, and seriousness were all so blended that it left him in greater doubt than ever as to her sensations. Besides, she added, the serious predominating in her tone, consider what a difference one rash word on either part may make between us. Let me regard you, at least for the present, as a friend, or as a brother, as you once said, Digby. Let me take counsel with you, seek your advice, call for your assistance, without one thought or care to shackle or restrain me. In pity, do, for you know not how much I need support. Then I am most ready to give it on your own terms and in your own way, answered Digby warmly. But immediately afterwards he fell into a reverie, and in his own mind thought, she is wrong in her view, or indifferent towards me. With a lover to whom all is acknowledged, and with whom all is decided, 
she would have greater confidence than with a friend towards whom the dearest feelings of the heart are in doubt. This must be resolved speedily. But not now, for it evidently agitates her too much. Yet after all, in that agitation is hope. Just as his meditations had reached this point, they passed by the little public house of the Chequers, then a very favourite sign in England, and especially in that part of the country, and in five minutes after they perceived a horseman on the road, riding rapidly towards them. "'There is Leighton,' said Sir Edward Digby as he came somewhat nearer, but Zara gazed forward with surprise at the tall, manly figure, dressed in the handsome uniform of the time, the pale but noble countenance, and the calm, commanding air. "'Impossible!' she cried. "'Why, he was a gay, slight, florid young man.' Six or seven years ago,' answered Digby. "'But that, my dear Miss Croyland, is Sir Henry Leighton, depend upon it.' Now it may seem strange that Edith should have instantly recognised, even at a much greater distance, the man whom her sister did not, though the same period had passed since each had seen him. But it must be remembered that Edith was between two and three years older than Zara, and those two or three years at the time of life which they had reached when Leighton left England are amongst the most important in a woman's life, those when new feelings and new thoughts arrive, to impress for ever on the woman's heart events and persons that the girl forgets in an hour. Leighton, however, it certainly was, and when Zara could see his features distinctly, she recalled the lines. Springing from his horse as soon as he was near, her sister's lover cast the bridle of his charger over his arm, and taking the hand she extended to him, kissed it affectionately. "'Oh, Zara, how you are changed,' he said. "'But so am I, and you have gained, whilst I have lost. "'It is very kind of you to come thus speedily.' "'You could not doubt, Leighton, that I would, if possible,' answered Zara. "'But all things are much changed in our house, as well as ourselves, "'and that wild liberty which we formerly enjoyed, "'of running whithersoever we would, is sadly abridged now. "'But what have you to say, Leighton, for I dare not stay long?' Digby was dropping behind, apparently to speak to his servant for a moment, but Leighton called to him, assuring him that he had nothing to say which he might not hear. "'Presently, presently,' answered Zara's companion, and leaving them alone, he rode up to good Mr. Summers, who, with his usual discretion, had halted, as they halted, at a very respectful distance. The young officer seemed to give some orders which were rather long, and then returned at a slow pace. In the meantime, the conversation of Leighton and Zara had gone on, but his only object, it appears, was to see her and to entreat her to aid and support his Edith in any trial she might be put to. "'I spent a short period of chequered happiness with her last night,' he said, and she then told me, dear Zara, that she was sure her father would send for her in the course of this day. If such be the case, keep with her always, as far as possible. Bid her still remember Harry Leighton,' bid her resist to the end and assure her that he will come to her deliverance ultimately were it myself alone i would sacrifice anything and set her free but when i know that by so doing i should make her wretched for ever that her own heart would be broken and nothing but an early death relieve her i cannot do it zara no one can expect it perhaps not perhaps not leighton answered zara with the tears in her eyes but yet my father However, I cannot advise, I cannot even ask anything. All is so dark and perplexed, I am lost. I am labouring now, dear Zara, replied the young officer, to find or devise means of rendering his safety sure. 
Already I have the power to crush the bad man in whose grasp he is, and render his testimony, whatever it may be, nearly valueless. At all events, the only course before us is that which I have pointed out, and while Digby is with you, you can never want the best and surest counsel and assistance. You may confide in him fully, Zara. I have now known him many years, and a more honourable and upright man, or one of greater talent, does not live. There was something very gratifying to Zara in what he said of his friend, and had she been in a mood to scrutinise her own feelings accurately, the pleasure that she experienced in hearing such words spoken of Sir Edward Digby, the agitated sort of pleasure, might have given her an insight into her own heart. As it was, it only sent a passing blush into her cheek, and she replied, "'I am sure he is all you say, Harry, and, indeed, it is to his connivance that I owe my being able to come hither to-day.' These smugglers took away all my father's horses, and I suppose from what I hear that some of them have been captured by your men. "'If such is the case, they shall be sent back,' replied Leighton, "'for I am well aware that the horses being found with the smugglers is no proof that they were there with the owner's consent. "'Tomorrow I trust to be able to give you a further insight into my plans, for I am promised some information of importance to-night.' and perhaps, even before you reach home, I shall have put a bar against Mr. Richard Radford's claims to Edith, which he may find insurmountable. As he was speaking, Sir Edward Digby returned, quickening his horse's pace as he came near, and pointing with his hand. "'You have got a detachment out, I see, Leighton,' he said. "'Is there any new affair before you?' "'Oh, no,' replied the Colonel. "'It is merely Irby and a part of his troop, whom I have dispatched to search the wood.' "'for I have certain intelligence that the man we are seeking is concealed there.' "'They may save themselves the troubles,' replied Zara, shaking her head, "'for though he was certainly there all yesterday, he made his escape this morning.' Leighton bit his lip, and his brow grew clouded. "'That is unfortunate,' he said, "'most unfortunate. "'I do not ask how you know, Zara, but are you quite sure?' "'Perfectly,' she answered. "'I would not deceive you for the world, Leighton. "'I only say what I have said, because I think that, if you do search the wood, it may draw attention to your being in this neighbourhood, which as yet is not known at Harborne, and may embarrass us very much. I am not sure, Leighton, said Sir Edward Digby, that as far as your own purposes are concerned, it might not be better to seem, at all events, to withdraw the troops, or at least a part of them, from this neighbourhood. Indeed, though I have no right to give you advice on the subject, I think also it might be beneficial in other respects, for as soon as the smugglers think you are gone, they will act with more freedom. "'I propose to do so to-morrow,' replied the Colonel, "'but I have some information already, and expect more, upon which I must act in the first place. It will be as well, however, to stop Irby's party, if there is no end to be obtained by their proceedings.' He then took leave of Sarah and his friend, mounted his horse, and rode back to meet the troop that was advancing. While Zara and Sir Edward Digby, after following the same road up to the first houses of Woodchurch, turned away to the right and went back to Harborne, by the small country road which leads from Kennedington to Tenterton. Their conversation as they went would be of little interest to the reader, for it consisted almost altogether of comments upon Leighton's changed appearance, and discussions of the same questions of doubt and difficulty which had occupied them before. They went slowly, however, and when they reached the house it did not want much more than three-quarters of an hour to the usual time of dinner. Sir Robert Croyland they found looking out of the glass door which commanded a view towards his brother's house, 
and his first question was which way they had returned. Sir Edward Digby gave an easy and unconcerned reply, describing the road they had followed, and comparing it, greatly to its disadvantage, with that which they had pursued on their former expedition. "'Then you saw nothing of the carriage, Zara?' inquired her father. "'It is very strange that Edith has not come back.' "'No, we saw no carriage of any kind, but a carrier's cart,' replied the young lady. "'Perhaps if Edith did not know you were going to send, she might not be ready.' This reason, however, did not seem to satisfy Sir Robert Croyland, and after talking with him for a few minutes more as he stood, still gazing forth over the country, Zara and Digby retired to change their dress before dinner, and the latter received a long report from his servant of facts which will be shown hereafter. The man was particularly minute and communicative, because his master asked him no questions, and suffered him to tell his tale his own way. But that tale fully occupied the time till the second bell rang, and Digby hurried down to dinner. Still Miss Croyland had not returned, and it was evident that Sir Robert Croyland was annoyed and uneasy. All the suavity and cheerfulness of the morning was gone, for one importunate source of care and thought will always carry the recollection back to others, and he sat at the dinner-table in silence and gloom, only broken by brief intervals of conversation, which he carried on with a laborious effort. Just as Mrs. Barbara rose to retire, however, the butler re-entered the room, announcing to Sir Robert Croyland that Mr. Radford had called and wished to speak with him. "'He would not come in, sir,' continued the man, "'for he said he wanted to speak with you alone, so I showed him into the library.' Sir Robert Croyland instantly rose, but looked with a hesitating glance at his guest, while Mrs. Barbara and Zara retired from the room. "'Pray do not let me detain you, Sir Robert,' said the young officer, I have taken as much wine as I ever do, and will go and join the ladies in the drawing-room. The customs of the day required that the master of the house should press the bottle upon his guest, and Sir Robert Croyland did not fail to do so. But Digby remained firm, and, to settle the question, walked quietly to the door and entered the drawing-room. There he found Zara seated, but Mrs. Barbara was standing near the table, and apparently in a state, for which the English language supplies but one term, and that not a very classical one, I mean, she was in a fidget. The reader is aware that the library of Harborne House was adjacent to the drawing-room, and that there was a door between them. It was a thick, solid oaken door, however, such as shut out the wind in the good old times, and moreover it fitted very close. Thus, though the minute after Sir Edward had entered the room, a low murmur as of persons speaking somewhat loud was heard from the library, not a single syllable could be distinguished, and Mrs. Barbara looked at the keyhole, with a longing indescribable. After about thirty seconds martyrdom, Mrs. Barbara quitted the room. Zara, who knew her aunt, candidly trusting that she had gone to put herself out of temptation, and Sir Edward Digby, never for a moment imagining that she could have been in any temptation at all, it may now be necessary, however, to follow Sir Robert Croyland to the library, and to reveal to the reader all that Mrs. Barbara was so anxious to learn. He found Mr. Radford, booted and spurred, standing with his tall, bony figure in as easy an attitude as it could assume by the fireplace, and the baronet's first question was, "'In the name of heaven, Radford, what has become of Edith? Neither she nor the carriage have returned.' "'Oh, yes, the carriage has, half an hour ago,' replied Mr. Radford, "'and I met the horses going back as I came. Didn't you get my message which I sent by the coachman?' "'No, I must have been at dinner.' answered Sir Robert Croyland, and the fools did not give it to me. 
"'Well, it is no great matter,' rejoined Mr. Radford, in the quietest possible tone. "'It was only to say that I was coming over and would explain to you all about Miss Croyland.' "'But where is she? Why did she not come?' demanded her father, with some of the old impetuosity of his youth. "'She is at my house,' answered the other, deliberately. "'I thought it would be a great deal better, Croyland, to bring her there at once, as you left to me the decision of where the marriage was to be. She could be quite as comfortable there as here. My son will be up to-morrow, and the marriage can take place quietly, without any piece of work. Now here it would be difficult to manage it.' "'for in the first place it would be dangerous for my son. "'You have got a stranger in the house "'and a whole heap of servants who cannot be trusted. "'I have arranged everything for the marriage "'and for their going off quietly on their little tour. "'We shall soon get a pardon for this affair with the dragoons, "'and that will be all settled.' "'Sir Robert Croyland had remained mute, "'not with any calm or tranquil feelings, "'but with indignation and astonishment.' "'Upon my life and soul,' he cried, "'this is too bad. "'Do you mean to say, sir, that you have ventured, "'without my knowledge or consent, "'to change my daughter's destination "'and take her to your house "'when I wished her to be brought here?' "'Undoubtedly,' replied Mr. Radford, "'with the most perfect calmness. "'Well then, sir,' exclaimed the baronet, "'irritated beyond all endurance, "'I have to tell you that you have committed "'a gross, insolent, and unjustifiable act, "'and I have to insist that she be brought back here "'this very night.' "'Nay, my dear friend, nay,' replied Mr. Radford "'in a half-jeering tone. "'These are harsh words that you use, "'but you must hear me first "'before I pay any attention to them.' "'I want to hear nothing, sir,' cried Sir Robert Croyland, "'his anger still carrying him forward. "'But if you do not send her back to her own home, "'I will get horses over from Tenterton "'and bring her myself.' "'Her slavery has not yet commenced, Mr. Radford.' "'I shall not be able to bring her over,' answered Mr. Radford, "'still maintaining the same provoking coolness, "'because, in case of her return, "'I should be obliged to use my horses myself "'to lay certain important facts, which we both know of, "'before a brother magistrate.' "'He paused, and Sir Robert Croyland winced, "'but still indignation was uppermost for the time, "'and rapidly as lightning the thoughts of resistance "'passed through his mind.' "'This man's conduct is too bad,' he said to himself. "'After such a daring act as this, with his character blackened by so many stains, "'and so clear a case of revenge, the magistrates will surely hardly listen to him.' "'But as he continued to reflect, timidity, the habitual timidity of many years, "'began to mingle with and dilute his resolution. "'And Mr. Radford, who knew him to the very heart, "'after having suffered him to reflect just long enough to shake his firmness, went on in a somewhat different tone, saying, "'Come, Sir Robert, don't be unreasonable, and before you quarrel irretrievably with an old friend, listen quietly to what he has got to say.' "'Well, sir, well,' said Sir Robert Croyland, casting himself into a chair, "'what is it you have got to say?' "'Why, simply this, my dear friend,' answered Mr. Radford, "'that you are not aware of all the circumstances, and therefore cannot judge yet whether I have acted right or wrong. You and I have decided, I think,' "'that there can no longer be any delay in the arrangement of our affairs. "'I put it plainly to you yesterday that it was to be now or never, "'and you agreed that it should be now. "'You brought me your daughter's consent in the afternoon, "'and so far the matter was settled. "'I don't want to injure you, and if you are injured, it is your own fault.' "'But I gave no consent,' said Sir Robert Croyland, "'that she should be taken to your house. "'The circumstances, the circumstances, Mr. Radford.' "'Presently, presently,' 
replied his companion. I take it for granted that, when you have pledged yourself to a thing, you are anxious to accomplish it. Now I tell you, there was no sure way of accomplishing this, but that which I have taken. Do you know who is the commander of this dragoon regiment which is down here? No, but I do. Do you know who is the man who, like a sub-officer of the customs, attacked our friends yesterday morning, took some fifty of them prisoners, robbed me of some seventy thousand pounds, and is now hunting after my son as if he were a fox? No, but I do, and I will tell you who he is, one Harry Layton, whom you may have heard of, now Lieutenant Colonel Sir Henry Layton, Knight of the Bath, forsooth. Sir Robert Croyland gazed upon him in astonishment, but whatever were his other sensations, deep grief and bitter regret mingled with them, when he thought the circumstances should ever have driven or tempted him to promise his daughter's hand to a low, dissolute, unprincipled villain, and to put a fatal barrier between her and one whom he had always known to be generous, honourable, and high-principled, and who had now gained such distinction in the service of his country. He remained perfectly silent, however, and the expression of surprise and consternation which his countenance displayed was misinterpreted by Mr. Radford to his own advantage. "'Now look here, Sir Robert,' he continued. "'If your daughter were in your hands, you could not help this young man having some communication with her. He has already been over at your brother's, and has seen her, I doubt not. Here, then, is your fair daughter, Miss Zara, your guest, Sir Edward Digby, his intimate friend, I dare say.' "'All your maids and half your men-servants, even dear Mrs. Barbara herself, with her sweet meddling ways, would all be ready to fetch and carry between the lovers. In short, our whole plans would be overturned, and I should be compelled to do that which would be very disagreeable to me, and to strike at this upstart Henry Layton through the breast of Sir Robert Croyland. In my house he can have no access to her, and though some mischief may already have been done, yet it can go no further. "'Now I understand what you mean by revenge,' said the baronet in a low tone, folding his hands together. "'Now I understand.' "'Well, but have I judged rightly or wrongly?' demanded Mr. Radford. "'Rightly, I suppose,' said Sir Robert Croyland sadly. "'It can't be helped. But poor Edith, how does she bear it?' "'Oh, very well,' answered Mr. Radford quietly. "'She cried a little at first, but when she found where they were going—' "'Asked the coachman what he meant. "'It was my coachman, you know, not yours, "'and so he lied like a good, honest fellow "'and said you were waiting for her at my house. "'I was obliged to make up a little bit of a story, too, "'and tell her you knew all about it "'and that it was no great harm, "'for I was resolved you should know all about it very soon.' "'Lied like a good, honest fellow,' "'murmured Sir Robert Croyland to himself.' "'Well,' he continued aloud, "'at all events I must come over to-morrow "'and try to reconcile the poor girl to it.' "'Do so, do so,' answered Mr. Radford, "'and in the meantime I must be off, "'for I've still a good deal of work to do to-night. "'Did you see they have withdrawn the dragoons from the wood? "'They knew it would be of no use to keep them there. "'So now, good-night. That's all settled.' "'All settled, indeed,' murmured Sir Robert Croyland, "'as Mr. Radford left him.' and for nearly half an hour after he continued sitting in the library, with his hands clasped upon his knee, exactly in the same position. End of chapter 5